Hey, what's going on, Champagne Sharks? This is T. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S. You can find the show Twitter at Champagne Sharks, one word, on Twitter. Um, also, remember to become a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks you usually get two episodes a week if you become a member subscriber as opposed to one episode a week and it's only five dollars a month unfortunately we've fallen behind but we are playing catch up so we will be uh, caught back up so it will still end up being an average of two episodes a week you will just end up getting like four episodes in one week go to reddit actually champagne sharks.reddit.com to go to the champagne sharks reddit if you go there you will be able to find other like-minded champagne sharks fans and what's great about that place is the moderators there don't just put up links to episodes of the show nor do they just discuss episodes of the show but they actually put up a lot of links that i guess kind of fit into the ethos of the show or are thematically on point so it ends up that i actually go there a lot and find a lot of links or show ideas or discussions that uh kind of make me think and make me reconsider things or expand certain things i already believe so it's a pretty good it's a pretty good site champagnesharks.reddit.com i really like what the guys uh do over there we don't have any active role in running it we're not particularly active there we pop in here and here and there but that's on purpose because i feel like uh when the subject of a fan page or a reddit is too active in it it kind of affects how candid and comfortable people are people start spending like way too much time trying to um interact with subjects of the fan page rather than just talking amongst themselves and being themselves so we deliberately and consciously try to take a mostly hands-off approach to the page but it's, it's pretty good i wanted to keep shouting it out and also um for premium members in addition to getting two episodes a week you end up getting access to something called the discourse server it's a chat server a text and voice chat server that is exclusive to subscribers of the show people who subscribe for five dollars a month so in addition to getting the double episodes and not only do you get two episodes a week but you get access to the archive of back episodes which at this point is like over 50 episodes i would say of uh extra episodes you get by becoming a subscriber and in addition to that you also get access to the discord server which is uh, a pretty fun place it's a lively conversation and 
we're going to start hosting voice chats there. Uh, voice chats based on topics like themed voice chats. So that, that should be fun. Yeah, so we've fallen behind and the fault is mine. Uh, life got in the way. That's not really an excuse, but uh, we will be catching up. Today is just me though. I wanted to um, discuss uh, several topics. And one of the topics I wanted to discuss was something that happened recently with uh, all the, there was a bunch of recent um, white terrorism that happened. And one of them was the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, it was a tragedy, of course, and it was a terrible thing. But one of the things I've done over the past couple of years on Twitter and various places is that I've complained about the expectation that uh, black families or black victims kind of get pressured by the media, both liberal and conservative, to forgive their transgressors, like even before the bodies are closed, even if the transgressor hasn't even expressed any type of sympathy or remorse. It's a common theme. And there was a lot of pushback on it by some people, like uh, people would be like, oh, you think you're imagining it? Or if it was white, the same thing would happen. Or that's like a strength of black people like their endless ability to turn the other cheeks or that they maintain their dignity through suffering and i've always felt it was a backhanded compliment like the way it feels to me i don't know if anyone's ever experienced this i'm sure everyone has but this is pet peeve i have and i always hate it like where when you handled something a certain way and somebody's trying to low-key say that you're a punk about how you handled it they'll frame it in a way that acts like they're jealous of you or um in admiration of you but you can tell they're not it's kind of like a dig and what they'll say is uh wow you're a better person than me i would have told him off uh, i guess i'm not as nice as you like i wish i could be that uh nice and you could tell they don't really wish they could be that nice because it's not really hard to just be nice and what i mean it's, it's really it's really not like it's a way of dissing you without owning that they're um dissing you or you know it's kind of like a patronizing thing like i always uh hate when people say stuff like that like oh wow you're much nicer than me i i wish i could do that you know and the person clearly makes no effort to ever the person says that never makes an effort to take the high road on anything it's just it's just a way that they want to get it out there that they would have uh taken care of business in a way that you you didn't and i've always felt that's kind of been the undertone to a lot of um the stuff people say where they, when they say about black people, oh, wow, I wish I could have that much grace in the face of uh, someone who killed my family, whatever. And I always feel like it's like a, a low-key, um, elbowing each other in the ribs kind of shot at black people or kind of saying like, uh, it works for them, but I have too much self-respect for that, but framed in a way that uh, you don't have to own that you're actually uh, dissing them. And one thing I've always said is that... Um, if white people really wanted to be this way, they have plenty of opportunities to, you know, make make an effort. I mean, the things that white people have accomplished in this world, uh, there's no way you can tell me that they can build like multinational global empires and corporate corporations and put people on the moon, but they can't figure out the first step to taking the high road and when being wrong. Like it's not rocket science. It's it's if they don't do it because they choose not to. They don't want to do it. And I told myself I would keep an eye out 
the next time there was a tragedy that befell um that befell a white group you know because I've, I've never seen first two things i've never seen them offer to take the high road or even really ponder it and i never even seen people rush to even ask them that like i think people kind of understand it would be insulting to even do so we don't even get this thing where people are just kind of rushing to white people like right after their loved ones died and ask them so uh you know the person just has just barely been caught do you forgive him like something was pornographic about it i because you see it in movies about black suffering and stories about black suffering where they kind of really valorize um the suffering under indignity and turning the other cheek and you know not quote-unquote sinking to the oppressor's level something that you really see valorized in any black narrative made for the consumption of white people that you never really see uh mirrored in white narratives like you don't like when white people have movies about their own suffering you better believe revenge is happening somewhere in it like there are things are braveheart it's never uh like even if the person ends up dying and it ends up being futile they uh it's never uh that the person's whole fight was just turning the other cheek you know so even if they don't win and the person um has to die and suffer their suffering and dying with dignity is that they did everything they could to fight even if it had to include killing people including women and children uh that's what they're dying with dignity um consists of whereas for a black character it's that they never fought back that's where the dignity comes from that you know they died never sinking to the oppressor's level which again is a value that i don't think low-key white people really subscribe to at least for themselves i think they only subscribe to it for black people for various reasons uh, partly because um they are the bad guys a lot of times in these narratives or at least look like the bad guys and also there's a lesser recognition even if it's subliminal even if it's unconscious of the black person's humanity so there's more comfort there's more of a comfort level or acceptance in thinking that they uh shouldn't have to fight back for themselves and to give an example they even see this when it comes to fake white people what i mean by that is the show westworld the show westworld is not even i mean these things in the show westworld and hbo are literally not human like they're robots they're literally not human and because they look like white people when you make a show about these westworld robots these robots can't even be seen as being allowed to just accept mistreatment with dignity as a way to um be heroic like so even robots because they look white so the optics of them i guess reminds white people of themselves um maybe not even because they look white maybe just because they don't look black like maybe even if they were blue just the fact that they're not black is enough for maybe white people to see the humanity in them but the first season which is all i watched the first season basically ends with um these robots waging a widespread violent murderous uh rebellion or revolution and it was just amazing to me i was like how often do you, do you even see that with uh black people i mean there was a nate turner movie i mean the nat turner movie by nate parker which basically uh got hobbled before it even stumbled out the gate if you ever look at the denmark vc story i mean that's somebody who 
an incredible amount of planning, got something like 9,000 slaves across a whole bunch of plantations, um, coordinated what was going to be an incredible uprising and contacted recently freed revolutionaries in Haiti and was in correspondence with them so that when they had their revolution, they could all sail to Haiti and be given sanctuary there. Like it was amazing the level of planning and coordination and planning for violent retribution that was done there. And we have never seen a Denmark BC uh, movie. I mean, the fact that we've had a Braveheart, he's not even American, but we haven't had a black American uh, Braveheart, somebody who was ready to be violent, you know, or, or a Nate Parker, someone who actually, Nat, Nat Turner, somebody who actually was violent uh, and failed, that we don't really glorify um, those stories. And some of the reasons why they kind of, sabotage um the nat turner story i mean besides the um the uh rape accusation that he was acquitted for um people say things like oh the nitpicking the historical accuracy of it and everything as if every single heroic white story of rebellion that gets made into a movie is like a documentary level accuracy like the level of double standards was crazy like if you ever look for example at the real story of braveheart versus what mel gibson put up there it's People get over historical inaccuracy all the time as long as they enjoy the spirit of the historical fiction and it makes them feel good. Like so, um, yeah, a lot of that is suspect. But I thought Westworld was a great example of the disconnect that people have when it comes to accepting black uh, defiance, even so-called quote-unquote good white people, um, the white liberals. Uh, A lot of it is the same thing a lot of it is the mindset of white supremacy but one group kind of wants to react against it and and overtly uh quash it while the other group tries to um believes in the same tropes and whatever but tries to um subvert it and suck the wind out of its sails with you know various bribes and paternalistic um condescending notions and behaviors that they hope will make black people feel grateful and striving and take away any uh, revolutionary um, spirit that they have, but still be not important or large enough that it actually hurts their own well-beings or their white children's well-beings or their own pockets or their, or makes them uncomfortable or give up position in any tangible, appreciable way. So, you know, for example, like they can check privilege all they want you know they can do their confessionals and check their privilege all the time and talk about how they can catch a cab and you can't and make all these little token gestures they can do like you know use my privilege to help black people but what does that mean like you know help a black person with something that is ultimately inconsequential or doesn't really require a real sacrifice from the white person but something like reparations that you know might actually um create make you fall behind as in now there's there's gonna be all these black people who are getting money that you're not you're going to be kind of falling behind relative to them you're going to you might have to break a lot of bread yourself uh, in terms of taxes and money to make these reparations come true like things like that liberals and conservatives you know kind of will then agree on that it shouldn't really happen and i think a lot of times they even act like they're down with something, but they're not really. And for example, with Ta-Nehisi Coates' reparations piece, it was a great piece in that it really um, 
made reparations into more of a serious topic than it ever was in the past. But in the years since it's gone through, none of the white people who are praising the peace made any ventures forward making reparations a reality. It's just dinner table conversation. It's almost become like the checking privilege thing. It's just something that you pay lip service to by vocalizing that you are conscious of it as a concept, as a way to get, you know, woke points for being aware of the issue. But I mean, we've seen how white people act when something comes to their attention that they really care about. The law will be immediately um, passed or show up or show up like, you know, um, they cared about Bill Cosby's um, uh, convicted for rape. And lo and behold, boom, they changed the statute of limitations instantly, retroactively catch Bill Cosby in that net. There was there wasn't years of debating and wondering if it should be done or whatever. Like when white people want to get things done, they can get them done. Like a lot of their so-called helplessness is not really helplessness. And a lot of us as black people have to stop just taking that as face value. You know, it's something that we do all the time. We don't pay attention to the things that get put into the national conversation and get laws passed while we're still waiting and watching them wring their hands about our issues, you know? But anyway, when this um, thing happened in Pittsburgh with the um, shooting at the synagogue, it made me really um, pay attention because I wanted to see what was going to happen and how it would um, play out. And yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting because as predicted, nobody pressured these people to, um, apologize but it wasn't even something that really uh came up the only time it ever really came up was when people wanted to compare this story to charleston so then it would bring up that the charleston people um asked for forget uh decided to forgive you know and it would get contrasted sometimes and even these articles you would see some of the same type of backhanded stuff i was telling about where people who were jewish would say about the Charleston people, oh, I wish I could be that big. And it's like, oh, come on. You have a reporter right in front of you. You can just say it if you really wanted to. Like, it's not like some exceedingly hard thing to do to say the words, I forgive. I mean, it's conceptually hard because you don't want to do it. It goes against your nature and you see nothing wrong with it, with not forgiving. And yeah, it popped up over and over again. The, uh, the guy's name is Robert Bowers. He's the one who shot the synagogue and he shot and killed 11 at the synagogue now i'm going to find various versions of the story because i think it's uh, pretty interesting but there was one article family of synagogue shooting victim declines meeting with trump and don't worry about googling these things or finding the stories yourself because all you have to do is go to the show notes i plan to put all of these um in the show notes uh, so just listen, and in the show notes, you'll be able to to see it later. But yeah, it's called Family of Synagogue Shooting Victim Declines Meeting with Trump. The story goes as the family of one of the 11 people killed at a Pittsburgh synagogue said they declined the meeting with President Trump because of his inappropriate response to the tragedy. David Stein, 71, who recently became a godfather, was one of those fatally shot inside the Tree of Life synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood in Pittsburgh on Saturday. His nephew, Stephen Hal, told Washington Post 
Tuesday that the family turned down an offer from the president to meet with him. House said the rejection came after the president said an armed guard inside of the place of worship would have been able to stop the gunman immediately. Quote, everyone feels that they were inappropriate, end quote, House said of Trump's comments. Quote, he was blaming the community, end quote. And he continued, a church, a synagogue should not be a fortress, should be an opening, open, welcoming place to feel safe. Stein's funeral coincides with the day the president and first lady Melania Trump are scheduled to visit Pittsburgh, although it is unclear if they will visit the predominantly Jewish neighborhood of Squirrel Hill. President Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto suggested on Monday that the president should reschedule his visit on a different day so it doesn't overlap with the funeral. Um, the article, I'm skip ahead, the article also says, nearly 70,000 people as of Tuesday have signed a petition from progressive Jewish organization, Ben the Ark, telling the president that he is not welcome in Pittsburgh until he denounces white nationalism. Quote, for the past three years, your words and your policies have emboldened a growing nationalist movement, Ben the Ark wrote in the letter. The Tree of Life synagogue's rabbi, however, said that Trump is, quote, always welcome. What basically happened was that all these people you know, said that they were not um, welcoming Trump. One person, the rabbi, in fairness, one, one rabbi said that he was always welcome. But it was interesting to me that these people weren't asked so much if they... Um, so much as they volunteered that they didn't want to meet with Trump. He, he offered a meeting. They said uh, no. So they can't only not forgive the actual shooter. They can't even forgive uh, the president who, I mean, he's had rhetoric that was um, racist, but I mean, it wasn't like he was directly responsible for the uh, shooting. I mean, he was indirectly responsible and, forgiveness for a majority of the congregation was not forthcoming now there was something else too there's another story that i found um interesting they said this one was from insideedition.com and it said pittsburgh rabbi hailed a hero for saving congregants amid gunfire now in this one i'm not going to uh, read the whole thing but it's about a rabbi named jeffrey myers who was leading services at the tree of life synagogue in pittsburgh when the gunman opened fire and in the article it says asked if the gunman could be forgiven myers said it was too soon to answer that so in this case he actually was asked so in a correction to myself i said that uh these people were, were not asked and they were asked i mean it wasn't as fast like they asked the people the minute uh dylan roof was arrested like in the courtroom when he was being uh, arraigned, they asked right there, and there's a bunch of reporters. But uh, it did eventually happen. To be fair, um, somebody was asked, not the families of the victims, not the families, which I think is a extra step of disrespect. But the rabbi who was there, which is still uh, to a degree disrespectful, but asked if the gunman could be forgiven. The article writes, Meyer said it was too soon to answer that. "Quote: I just don't know," he replied. The wounds are too open to answer that. I have to really think about that. Can you really forgive everybody for all evil? Is one of those big theological questions. And right now I can't answer it. So, I mean, he's not even an attendee. He's the actual religious leader, the follower of God. And even he's saying, hey, forgiving evil is an open question. I don't know about that. I Like, 
like even like their religious uh figurehead their leader is um saying no thanks i'm good and uh yeah that's that's something i found uh pretty pretty interesting um and this theme just keeps uh popping up throughout a lot of these stories about this um there was another story this one was in the times and this one i, I think is pretty interesting this one is called anguished by spiral of hate charleston pastor and pittsburgh rabbi grievous one and this one was interesting because they brought the pastor from charleston uh where dylan roof uh unleashed his gunfire together with the rabbi the same one from before rabbi myers the one that i had just mentioned in the last story the one that said that um the wounds are too open to answer that i have to think about it and it's one of those big theological theological questions i don't know if i can answer they brought them together and what makes this article interesting was the contrast uh of seeing the two both how the reporter kind of describes the two and both you know how they respond so it says um in both this is what the article says i'm reading verbatim in both instances the gunmen left a cachet cachet of hate-filled online commentary eagerly volunteered their motives i have to do this dylan roof who was 21 at the time told his african-american victims in emmanuel's fellowship hall as he fired 77 shots from a glock semi-automatic handgun because y'all are raping our women and y'all are taking over the world according to survivors who testified at his 2016 trial shortly after shortly before the assault on a synagogue which the police say involves four weapons including a glock 357 robert bowers 46 explained himself on a social media post i can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered he wrote screw your optics i'm going in after his surrender he told a swat officer that he wanted jews to die because they quote were committing genocide against his people according to a criminal complaint so you see the similarities in motives and actions of both killers so the express motives and the actions and the tactics were not uh that different so that's something to keep in mind when you see a difference in response the article continues pastor manning heard about the pittsburgh shootings last saturday morning when his smartphone vibrated with a news alert he was at emmanuel participating in a panel discussion about the charleston massacre for a visiting group of young lawyers his heart sank not again he recalled thinking he had become emmanuel's pastor in 2016 tasked with the complex job of healing a deeply wounded church which now attracts large numbers of out-of-town visitors by the way this church was a church founded by denmark vc who is the same guy i described earlier this episode as being the um former slave who wanted to cause a um rebellion that was coordinating 9,000 slaves and was going to bring them to haiti so it's a very interesting contrast that um this is the church founded by somebody with that very major revolutionary spirit this person that does not get celebrated in white hollywood and does not get a movie even though he's what makes him really um philosophically different than a braveheart you know uh, he's the America's Braveheart, basically, but um, he doesn't get that credit. But it's interesting that this is was his church and how different the spirit um, is. This is not to criticize these victims, but uh, we're a colonized, traumatized people, and you can see how this happens. But going on, he filled the pulpit once occupied by the Reverend Clementus C. Pinckney, 
the first person shot by Mr. Roof. He did not hold President Trump, whom he refers to as 45, directly responsible for inciting violence. But he referred pointedly to the president's, quote, undercurrents and untruths, end quote. And he contrasted the powerful eulogy against hate delivered by Barack Obama after the Emanuel tragedy with Mr. Trump's instant response that the killings could have been prevented if the synagogue had armed guards. Now, here is a problem I have. This thing that happened with Obama right after the um, shooting, Obama's eulogy, to me, was very disrespectful. And it sounded eloquent. It sounded high-minded. And like everything Obama does, he has this way of talking with what feels because the intonations and some of the phraseology and his body language, it feels like soaring rhetoric. But when you actually examine the content and get past like the theatrics and the performance, a lot of times it's either just empty or it's downright um, insulting. Like, you know, a lot of his speeches to black people used to be kind of for white audiences, kind of admonishing uh, black people to pull up their pants or say like racism is over and stop making excuses. But he would deliver it like to black audiences, clearly with for a white audience in mind to kind of show like, hey, even though I'm I'm a black president, don't worry, I'm not going to go easy on these uh, black people. But if you weren't paying attention, you could almost convince yourself that he was actually speaking inspirationally or empathetically to the black people. And I felt like his speech was very similar when it came to um, what he said to the Charleston people. I thought it was very much for white or respectable audiences and it was kind of a way to reassure the public that race war wasn't imminent and that black people were still going to keep forgiving with dignity or whatever and also i guess to reassure people that as he has done his whole presidency even though i'm the black president i everyone's interest in mind especially you white people and i'm not the guy who's going to raise up a race war i'm the black guy that's going to keep the other blacks in line. I am a manager of black people, not a leader of black people. I'm not an inspirational leader. I'm not one. I'm not a freedom fighter for black people. I am your appointed manager of black people. I will manage them uh, for you. I mean, he's always kind of spoken to and about black people this way, but he's admonishing them to put up their pants or he's um, for white audiences, particularly Democrats, um, trying to get them to vote for Hillary, trying to show, hey, you know, I can corral and hurry these people into voting boots for you. I can um, stop them from being sparked to revolution by this stu- by this stuff. But his um his speech and the best way to examine the speech is to imagine it being said to white victims, like say like uh, at a white mass shooting, like Sandy Hook. And once you do that, or you know Boston massacre. Boston Marathon uh, massacre. And once you do that, because that's a problem. So many of us, even black people, are so used to black people being given the short end of the stick. I discussed this in the episode where I said um, black pathology realism. So many of us are used to black people getting the short end of the stick that we start um, not only expecting it, but being happy when we get a little bit more than the short end of the stick. Like it's like Stockholm syndrome. Like a lot of people don't understand what Stockholm syndrome is. I mean, they, they understand it generally, but they don't ha- n- think of it as the working definition. Uh, we just treat it as something that we understand when we see it. But the literal definition of Stockholm Syndrome is when you get so accustomed to bad treatment that just getting a little bit less than the worst treatment, even though it's still bad, makes you feel grateful 
as if it was something good. I feel like this speech was an example and the black appreciation of this speech was an example of uh, Stockholm Syndrome. And I think it's very interesting the pass that this reverend gave Obama for this speech and presenting it as if it was so much better than what Trump said or did to the Jewish people. So this is this is the part. And I feel like a lot of people not only missed it, but like enjoyed it. When I was on Twitter, a lot of blue check black excellence Twitter was live tweeting the speech and like loving it. And I found it disgusting. But um he's talking about let me find the exact part because I have I have the um this is what this is the part that I think is a good place to start. He says you don't you don't have to be of high distinction to be a good man. And he's talking about uh Clementa P- Pinckney, the uh reverend of the church who died in Charleston, the first one who got shot. Preacher by 13, pastor by 18, public servant by 23. What a life Clementa Pinckney lived. What an example he set. What a model for his faith. And then to lose him at 41, slain in the sanctuary with eight wonderful members of his flock, each at different stages in life, but bound together by a common commitment to God. Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, the Payne Middleton doctor, Taiwanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson, good people, decent people, God-fearing people, in the crowd applauses. People so full of life and so full of kindness, people who ran the race, who persevered, people of great faith. To the families of the fallen, the nation shares in your grief. Our pain cuts that much deeper because it happened in a church. The church is and always has been the center of African-American life, a place to call our own in a too often hostile world, a sanctuary from so many hardships. Over the course of centuries, black churches served as hush harbors where slaves could worship in safety, praise houses where their free descendants could gather and shout hallelujah. Lots of applause because he's buttering them up with a lot of uh, flattery, right? So it sounds pretty nice, but this is like flattery because of what's going to come later. Rest stops for the weary along the Underground Railroad, bunkers for the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement. They have been and continue to be community centers where we organize for jobs and justice, places of scholarship and network, places where children are loved and fed and kept out of harm's way and told that they are beautiful and smart and taught that they matter. Which is very nice, but it doesn't really speak to what happened. As in, there was this killing, this massacre that happened as a result of white supremacy. And what are you going to do about it? Like, not just justice against this one man, but to fight against this rising tide of white supremacy. Because one of the big myths that we kind of have right now is that this started with Trump. We, we almost act like it's happened because he was elected. And if Hillary won, it wouldn't have happened. And all we have to do is just get him out of office in 2020, and it'll go away again. You know, and we don't really give enough credence to the fact that this was building for eight years under Obama. And a lot of people were kind of underplaying it because the black managerial class was very happy. The black excellence crowd was very happy with the representation with the symbolism of Obama, the idea that it was going to be a golden era for them and it was going to continue under Hillary. And the black people on the ground didn't have to worry about these Tea Party people who were building in their racism and were swelling and growing into the alt-right and these white militias and all these other things that they were kind of ignorable, able to be ignored because things were going okay for them. And, you know, 
Democrats were winning elections and when the Democrats won elections it just kept meaning more jobs for the black elites and everyone could kind of collectively put their heads in the sand and you know do whatever but the whole black lives matter thing was brewing under Obama Zimmerman happened under Obama and of course he didn't cause any of the stuff but he didn't really speak to it in any meaningful way either not the way he spoke to a lot of other things he uh was nothing but playing both sides and being balanced and diplomatic throughout it all and trying not to alienate his white liberal base by sounding too radical or outraged. I mean, compare like how he spoke about any of those things going on to black people with how he talked about the trans bathroom situation, which he was very unequivocally, uncompromisingly and passionately outraged about. And he um, called it the new um, Jim Crow and segregation and whatever. I mean, he didn't even use that language for actual black people. So this whole thing, this flattery means it's, it's just, it's just kind of flattery and it's nice. And it's talking about telling black kids they're beautiful and whatever, but that's not putting money in black people's pockets or keeping them safe from terrorists like this, or giving people any reassurance that the government in general, or he specifically is going to take any tangible steps to prevent this from happening again, or making sure that these people will consistently get punished. It's just useless flattery. But we as black people are very, very responsive to recognition. Like we will take recognition over results all the time, mainly because we are used to not getting either. And since recognition is easier to give, you know, a lot of of times we'll, we'll be satisfied with that. So anyway, he goes, that's what happens in church. That's what the black church means. Our beating heart, the place where our dignity as a people is inviolate. Again, there goes that word dignity. And, you know, for a guy who's so into, you know, the black church and what it does for black people, whatever, I mean, he threw Reverend Wright under the bus with ease. No problem there. And that guy was somebody who was really using the black church to do those things that he was saying, like, you know, organize for jobs and justice and, and not just tell black kids that they're beautiful, but, you know, really call out white supremacy and, talk with a very strong revolutionary uh, talk. I mean, he just treats the black church like uh, what he's telling, what he's describing as the black church is what a white liberal's conception of the black church is or what, what the white liberal wants it to be. He wants it to just be some place where those plucky, resilient Negroes go and, you know, practice that good old Negro forgiveness and sing those uh, inspiring spirituals and, you know, Whenever I want to kind of be immersed in that uh, primitive, noble, savage, you know, Negro spirituality, I can go over to that black church and just marvel at their um, unintellectual, humble, noble, savage spirit, you know, like, like, like their innate goodness, you know, their kind of primitive, yet in some ways better than ours because it's almost cosmic in its primitiveness. Uh, sense of justice that, that they have, you know, that's kind of how they, they see us. Like they don't really see us as being able to formulate like a very intellectual or philosophical level of justice, like a John Rawls or a Cardozo or Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, um, even like the best black legal minds, um, Thurgood Marshall, they view him more for his symbolism and his innate goodness more than, uh, his involved legal theory. Like, you know, there's not a lot of people who really, uh, white intellectuals are like will debate or discuss Thurgood Marshall as a great 
legal intellect. Not saying that he was or wasn't. I'm just saying how they uh, perceive him. You know, like what we are is just some kind of supernatural, almost childlike primal um, force. And our justice is kind of like the justice that comes from the innocence of a child, like like the primitiveness of a of a savage. And um, you know, a lot of what he's saying here doesn't really um, go against that. When what Reverend Wright was doing was kind of scary. It's somebody who had a, when his speech, the goddamn America speech was someone who had, you know, sounded like he was re reading a lot of like Chomsky and Zen and history and was reading about the deep state. And I mean, that wasn't just um, talking about feelings or the Bible to inform uh, primitive sense of justice, but this was somebody who seemed to be pretty engaged with radical intellectual uh, literature and that scared Obama's white liberal base just as much as it scared um, the white conservatives who didn't like him. Um, and also that kind of ties into what a lot of these white leftists, they love to say, um, oh, if the Trump crowd is so racist, why did they um, vote for Obama? Why did someone vote for Obama twice before they voted for Trump? And reasons like this are why, because Obama won with a lot of arguably racist people, not because he was black or even in spite of the fact he was black. He won because of how black he wasn't. He won because of things like this, where he would either talk down to or chastise black people for white audiences or kind of repackage um, comforting black tropes and present them back to white people in his speeches. And, and that's what um, this thing is. He's painting the black church as something that's like harmless and a place where black people can be groomed to suffer with dignity, you know? Um, and unlike uh, how Reverend Wright's speech made the black church sound, which is like, holy shit, this is, this could be the flashpoint for, you know, a violent uprising. You know, that's not how white people want to see the black church. They want to see it as a place where you can like, Here's some Negro spirituals and some immerse yourself in some nice tribal rituals. Um, so then he goes, there's no better example of this tradition than Mother Emmanuel, a church. There are more applause. So he's, you know, he's, he's laying it on. A church built by blacks seeking liberty, burned to the ground because its founders sought to end slavery, only to rise up again, a phoenix from these ashes. I mean, these guys didn't just want to end slavery because that made the sound they just wanted to pass a bill. No, these people wanted to launch a full-scale rebellion and like actually, like, you know, really fight back against the system. But, you know, he makes it sound very, um, like there was more just suffering with dignity in the creation of this church. When there were laws banning all black church gatherers, services happened here anyway in defiance of unjust laws, when there was a righteous movement to dismantle Jim Crow, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., again this is for white audiences you always have to bring up martin luther king and not even the real martin luther king but you have to evoke the imaginary neutered watered down martin luther king that uh white people have created in the wake of his death martin luther king jr preached from his pulp from its pulpit and marches began from its step from its steps and he, you know i'm gonna skip ahead right he goes ahead he goes we do not know whether the killer of reverend pinckney and eight others knew all of this history but he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches, not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. 
And then the audience burst into applause again, which is kind of how sick we are. Like, um, we're cheering the fact that this guy realized how painful this was going to be, like the amount of suffering that it was going to um, inflict. And why would they cheer there? Why would they cheer at that spot? Because we're so trained to be proud of our capacity to suffer that the fact that this guy recognized the amount of suffering he was about to inflict, that clapping is almost like, yes, bring it on. We're going to show how much we can, we can suffer. I mean, I was very struck by the applause that happened at that spot, you know, like um, bringing up just how the guy realized how much suffering he was going to um, inflict. And it ties into the rest of this because the rest of this, I think, kind of proves that my theory about it, about why that applause happened at that spot is right, right? Obama continues, an act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion, an act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sins. Then he pauses. Then he says, oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Then there's applause. God has different ideas. Then there's applause. He didn't know he was being used by God. Now think about how sick that is. To tell a group of people who just had their families and their congregation ripped apart by a white supremacist murderer, then you tell this crowd God works in mysterious ways, that God had different ideas, and that this guy um, did this to um, make you suffer in such a profound way, but he was actually sent by God, and God had a different idea, and God's different idea was that you were going to Who's going to use you as an example to get 11 of you, to get uh, nine of you killed, and then use you as an example to the rest of the world to show how to take abuse with dignity and get up. Like, God just thinks of you as a motivational exercise. He thinks he th your lives don't matter to the point that even God, you don't even matter to God. God just uses you, your lives, as just a way to inspire white people and other people around the world. Because like I said, to me, this was really a speech for white people. It wasn't really for the audience there. But, you know, the audience there appreciates that anyway because we have Stockholm Syndrome and we were just happy to get any type of recognition as long as it sounds um, good and sounds soaring rhetoric. But picture he went to the Sandy Hook shooting or the Boston Marathon Massacre and addressed those people and told them, told them at the peak of their, like, suffering, at the funeral, that God was working mysterious ways, that God sent this person to kill their, sent this terrorist to kill their loved ones. Like this, this, this terrorist is an agent of God who's there to um, kill your loved ones as, you know, some kind of noble sacrifices to show the world how much suffering you can take and, you know, use you as, uh, use your lives as inspiration. Like, your lives don't matter. You're just characters in some kind of, uh, you're just supporting players in the lives of other people. You're just, I mean, it's incredibly insulting. He would not have said it to anyone else except black people. If he did, he would have gotten roasted. He would have gotten demolished. If he told Sandy Hook people that God worked in mysterious ways and the Sandy Hook shooter was being used by God to send, you know, to kill you guys, to, to teach a lesson or whatever, that uh, this person thought this was going to break you, but God had different ideas and God sent this person to show that you wouldn't get broken. Like, it's amazingly 
not only is this amazing insulting, it's just amazing that um, you can get away with that with black people, but that no one, none, white people or black people, it just flew right past them. It's just that internalized. That's that whole black pathology realism that I discussed in the previous episodes. This idea that people are so used to black people living in a degraded, less than state that they can't imagine a conception of black people that is not that way. I mean, this was the key moment where I really realized I was never going to like Obama when I when I saw this. And what was more tragic to me about it was when it was being live tweeted and I saw all the black people, including a lot of academics and media types and activist types, just putting all these happy face emojis and animated dancing gifs uh, to the speech while he was just heaping this disrespect on them. Like, like we're just actively cheering on and putting black excellence hashtags while this guy is just blatantly uh, disrespecting uh, the value of your lives in a way that he would never to a white congregation. Disgusting. But he continued on, blinded by hatred. And again, as I'm saying this, imagine him saying this to victims of a white tragedy. Imagine him saying this to the synagogue people, the, the, the families of that Jewish synagogue where 11 people died, the family that couldn't even forgive Trump for saying that he wished the, arms, the guards were armed. Just him saying that made them write him off and say, uh, you're not welcome here. Uh, the same synagogue where the head of it said that I don't even think uh, forgiveness is particularly a godlike virtue, right? Picture he, he went to them, Obama, and said the following. Blinded by hatred, the alleged killer would not see the grace surrounding Reverend Pinckney and that Bible study group, the light of love that shone as they opened the church doors and invited a stranger to join in the prayer circle. The alleged killer could never have anticipated the way the families of fallen would respond when he saw him in court in the midst of unspeakable grief with words of forgiveness. He couldn't imagine that. And then more applause. People are actually applauding, applauding this, that he's cheering the image of these radiant sheep just opening the doors to a wolf to their own slaughter. He's, he's selling this as a beautiful image and they're, they're cheering this image that, you know, this is their virtue that, you know, they died gracefully. Um, they're cheering that, that the killer couldn't anticipate the level of forgiveness that he was going to get in the middle of unspeakable grief. He's cheering that as, as a victory, this killer who later on the trial throughout the end, adamantly kept reiterating that he was not sorry. He didn't even care. Like they forgave him, and he later on spit in the faces by constantly throwing in the face that he was glad he did it and he didn't care and he didn't even want to be um, spared, right? So all this applause. The alleged killer could not imagine how the city of Charleston under the good and wise leadership of Mayor Riley, how the state of South Carolina, how the United States of America would respond not merely with revulsion at his evil acts, but with generosity. And more importantly, with a thoughtful introspection and self-examination that we so rarely see in public life. Blinded by hatred, he failed to comprehend what Reverend Pickney so well understood, the power of grace, of God's grace. He's thinking that this guy wants to do this to hurt black people's feelings and to make them prove their faith. Like this is that hearts and minds, anti-racism stuff that mealy mouth liberals always do. I mean, this guy came into the church and said why he was there. He said he was there because you're raping all our women and y'all are taking over our world. That, those were his words. He says, I have to do this because y'all are raping our women and y'all are taking over the world. 
and he was a believer in white genocide and that by black people just being born, they were genociding white people and there were too many black people in the world and they were raping the women. You understand what to a racist, what a black man raping a woman means. This is very important to understand to a racist. All intercourse between a black man and a white woman is a form of rape. Black men sleeping with black women at all and the risk of them getting pregnant and breeding new black babies into existence into white bloodlines. That's the genocide. That's how quote y'all are taking over the world end quote that rape he wasn't just talking about like uh criminals i mean this guy is not a dummy i'm she, i i don't think he thinks that that church is full of literal rapists like there are just black penises in that church black penises that may or may not end up having sex with a white woman or might be giving birth to a kid who in the next generation will have sex with a white woman like, like they just feel like this is just an inevitability inevitability it's a sexual paranoia. So the only solution to it is to get rid of black bodies, to kill black people. This is all he wanted to do. He was not going there in some academic exercise to see, huh, let me see if that black spirit is breakable or not. Oh, they're really uh, withstanding that uh, indignity so well. I guess they showed me 11 people die job done. That's 11 less black people in the fucking world. That's all he cares about. This guy is just selling useless liberal pieties and whatever because a lot of white liberals don't really want to face what white racism really is because it makes them uncomfortable and this is not only about reassuring them that the negroes are going to stay complacent but sell them their kind of delusional vision of what racism is it's not about systems it's not about eradication it's not about genocide it's just about interpersonal hearts and minds and feelings and optics and dignity and decorum you know west wing type shit like you know that that whole um civility and stuff and and it's insulting to the memory of these people to act like that's what this murder was that's also insulting to act like this is what it is about a moral victory he did not show up there for a moral victory he showed up there to kill black people and he killed 11 so in his mind he won his only regret is that he didn't kill more for the rest of the trial we've saw him and nothing moved him about any of that display of grace if anything i'm sure he just scoffed at it and his statements kind of uh said that but this last paragraph that i said is very interesting because it adds to the idea that these black people died to give all these other people a chance to reflect they're like magical negroes like they're lives and death were there to help white people reach self-actualization to become their best selves that's what their existence was you know they're just extensions of these more important white people so you know when he says that the, the alleged killer could not imagine the city of charleston and its good and wise leadership of its mayor riley and the whole state of south carolina and not just that but the whole united states of america not only be revulsed, but also find generosity uh, and also find thoughtful introspection and self-examination that we see so rarely in public life. It's like almost like, so put it all together. God's mysterious plan of these people dying, God using this man is to kill these 11 people so that the city of Charleston and the good and wise mayor and the whole state of south carolina and not just that but the whole united states of america gets the chance to respond with generosity and introspection and self-examination like 
the character in a Magic Negro uh, movie where the black where the black person is suffering, uh, so like Green Mile, the black person is suffering, or or like um, what do you call it, Time to Kill, like the black person suffering, helps the white person realize um, their best selves, you know, or the, or the black person's uh, counsel, the black person's spiritual example, their dignity, you know. Meanwhile, white people never use their own dignity or suffering to come to these same conclusions. When something happens to them, their dignity and suffering is only a call to revenge. So then what does he launch into? He launches into Amazing Grace. And why is Amazing Grace significant? Because first, what it's about is, you know, grace, you know, which is a powerful image. But what it's about and how it sounds is why it's so popular with white people. He had to choose a spiritual that every white person knows. Like he chose the most basic, lowest common denominator, well-known, because this is not really for the congregation. This is not really for black people. Like he didn't pick a gospel song that's popular among black people, but that people outside the black church might not be as acquainted with. He went with the most lowest common denominator. Like this was a speech for America, not a speech for these people. And I feel like that the choosing of that song, that super obvious uh, song, was very um telling especially because what in the words of the song really respond to that situation or apply to it saved a wretch like me i was lost and like like, like who was that for there's no thought in applying the song to that uh situation i mean it's a song written by a slave trader amazing grace is an interesting song because it's um the guy who wrote it was a slave trader and if i understand um correctly he was a former slave trader and a lot of people he was a slave trader for a long, for a long time. And, um, he became a Christian after becoming a slave trader. And I think if I understand correctly, uh, that the song is kind of about him kind of making, uh, feeling he's kind of being sorrowful about being a slave trader to a degree. I mean, I think, um, I believe that's what it is. A, a lot of people say the meaning of the song is, uh, ambiguous, but it's about, arguably a white slave traders redemption why would you have a song why would you have a song about with that background that's arguably about the um redemption of a black of, of, a, of a white racist as the song to address his people with uh think about that like um uh, i'm not saying that this was even um something conscious on um obama's part but even if it's just carelessness you know to um he decided to um, sing the song written by a longtime slave trader that's arguably about his um, torture or, or having been one and I guess uh, his his redemptions it's um it's it's re it's really something like one one of the things he, he became a abolitionist uh, later on by writing a um, essay called thoughts upon the African slave trade. And at the time, Christians still felt that slavery was justified in the Bible. So he avoided building the protest against slavery on a religious platform. But instead, he condemned the practice as an inhum inhumane treatment of fellow men and women that actually brutalized the captors as, uh, as well as the actual slavers, that the callous treatment of others. And he cited offenses uh, among his slave trading that he saw and i assume participated in as including torture rape and murder and saying that the reason for slavery to end was that these things traumatize 
the abusers as well as um, the actual slaves that were being uh, traded. And I believe Amazing Grace is um, kind of written in that um, spirit, you know. Uh, one of his quotes uh, in an essay, he had said, I hope it, meaning slave trading, will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me, that I was once an active administrator an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. And it's like, this is the guy you gotta have a song from a funeral that is about the murder of 11 black people at the hands of a white racist terrorist. Like you're going to a slavery, a church that was at the heart of an anti-slavery rebellion by Denmark BC. So many years ago, you're going to um, send off a murder by white racist terrorists um, that occurred there. You're going to send off a funeral for those people with the hymn of a slave trader, the site of this act of um, racial terrorism in response to this racial genocidal terrorism. I mean, it just kind of shows that disconnect that Obama has always kind of felt with black people and how it's always been there for um, white people. And like I said, imagine any of this happening to a white congregation. Imagine it happening to the white people who were in the synagogue um, shooting in those, in those communities. It's, um, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's, it's really, it's really, really ridiculous. And um, going on with this New York times, going on with this New York times article. Um, so the guy in the New York times article praises Barack Obama's speech. He says, you know, he contrasted, you know, how the terrible um, Trump with this quote, undercurrents and under truths, he contrasted the powerful eulogy against hate delivered by President Barack Obama after the Emanuel tragedy with Trump's instant response that the killings could have been prevented if the synagogue had had armed guards. And based on what I'm saying, do you think that Obama's speech was really that much more sensitive or so much greater than what Trump said about the armed guards at the synagogue? I think it's as disrespectful, if not arguably more, you know? And it's just sad that we think so little of ourselves to demand more. The article continues. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to this article. The killings in Charleston became a national touchstone, not only because they evinced such a shocking level of indiscriminate violence, also central to the moment were the spontaneous expressions of forgiveness for the killer expressed by some victims' family members at a bond hearing only two days after the attack. It's interesting. New York Times says it's central to the moment, which is very interesting. Like what's become central to the moment, the forgiveness of, of the black people. Um, think about that, that by doing this, and this is why they want you to do it. Your forgiveness becomes inseparable from the incident. So now the incident is forever, the killing and your forgiveness. It, the absolution is kind of baked in to the memory now. And I think it's very interesting that they said that it's uh, central. And what's going to happen with the synagogue is that's not going to happen with the synagogue shooting. The synagogue shooting is going to be able to remain purely about the murder. And that's the beauty of them not forgiving. Because one thing I've noticed in the researching for this episode was that almost everything I found bringing up this uh, shooting had to bring up the forgiveness. And that's why they asked so fast because they know the sooner they can get the forgiveness out there, the sooner it's inextricably fused into the memory, into the moment. And that's what makes it um, 
that much more worse. And that is not going to happen with this synagogue thing. It's always going to be about never forget about whatever. And I think these people realize that they're, they're smart. I mean, they always do that. They always try uh, with that um, Teresa Klein woman in Brooklyn who um, accused that little boy of trying to rape her in that corner store, the one that they called corner store Carolyn. One of the reasons why they kept asking the boy and then eventually the mother to forgive is now it's harder to go after this woman. A lot of people were pressuring the DA to press charges against this woman. But then what happens is once people can see, oh, even the victims aren't mad. How crazy do you look being mad about this? You know, they realize it sucks the wind out of a lot of the spirit of retribution, the spirit of revolution. They, um, that's where they want to get that out in the air that the victims forgive. The hopes that black people watching, it'll get the air sucked out of their sails, you know, for any type of race war or retribution or revolution or systemic overhaul, or at the least get them so disgusted that they don't want anything to do with those people anymore because they feel betrayed by them. But either way, it works. So the article, the article continues, the New York Times article. The views were not shared by all in Charleston or in the church or even within their families, but their demonstrations of Christian grace move people around the world. Now, again, just like Obama's speech and this New, this New York Times article, that's their takeaway too, that somehow what's important is not so much what it did to them, but what they, by their suffering and grace, as magical Negroes, were able to do to the rest of the why does it matter if the demonstrations of Christian grace move the world? But that's what black people are expected to do. They're expected to be everyone's conscious, to be everyone's um, everyone's externalized guilt or trauma or displaced. Um. People don't talk about whether what white people did as being primarily important due to whether or not it moved the rest of the world. That's like, you know, secondary. The primary thing is if it helped them. Like, you know, so... Going, going forward, quote, I was so overpowered by that Rabbi Chuck Diamond, who retired from the Tree of Life Synagogue two years ago, remember this week. I was so impressed and kind of wished I could be that good. And I remember what I said before about how people love doing that backhanded thing of when they think you're doing something weak. You know, they kind of say, oh, I wish I could be that nice or wow, you're better than me. Like, very interesting you said that. Like, you're a rabbi. If you really wanted to find the spiritual strength to forgive, you know, like, I'm sure you could do it. You, you don't want to. You don't think it's a good thing. Just say that. Don't give us this fucking backhanded praise, you know, that it's something that you can't do. And this actually makes them stronger than you. No, you, you don't think that, you know, because you would at least, okay, even if you can do it yourself, you would charge your followers, the people who are attending for them to try to do it. You're like, hey, I can't do it. But please, everyone try to forgive. You know, he's not telling his people to forgive. So it's not about he can't do it himself. He doesn't believe in it. Cause he's not telling anyone else to try. If like I can't do it, but if you can, please do it. No, you know it's like that's something for black people because black people that's expected of them. They're we're suffering experts. We're it's black pathology realism. That's just as good as black existence gets. You know, you forgive for us. You know, because that's that's what you do. You forgive so that we don't have to. Like we know there's enough grace in the world through the existence of you, constant saps. You know, so we can just be as vengeful and whatever as we want. You're picking up that slack in the world uh, for us. And then this is this is where it gets better. But Rabbi Diamond and other le leaders here said, there has not been much talk of forgiveness for the synagogue gunmen within Pittsburgh's Jewish community. Quite the contrary, said Rabbi Danny Schiff. 
an ethicist and the foundation scholar at the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh, all the Jews I'm in contact with regard him as a person who is beneath contempt, end quote. That's what um, this third rabbi said. So you have three rabbis saying no interest in forgiving. No one that we even know has talked about forgiving him. And, you know, one who's even an ethicist, you know, they say all Jews I'm in contact with regard him as a person who is beneath contempt. So if anything, that's what's going to be fused into this moment. All the immediate dialogue is about um, how they don't forgive him almost universally. So that's become fused into the moment. And that kind of treats people with what to expect as far as what you have to do to pacify this community in response to this. Like, you know, are people who talk like this, what's it what's going to take for them to be uh, pleased as far as a political response is way different than the people who can't wait to um, forgive. So the article, the article goes on. Jews interviewed here said that they had been too busy burying the dead and trekking from Shiva to Shiva to devote much thought to the killer. But Jewish theologians also explained that their tradition rooted more in the retributive justice of the Old Testament than the turn-the-cheek ethos of the New Testament takes a different approach to forgiveness. Under the guidelines for repentance or teshuva, when man sins against God, say by violating rules of the Sabbath, he may seek forgiveness through confession and prayer, but when man seeks against man, the offender must seek and receive forgiveness from the victim after making restitution. So only the victim, the person who was killed, can forgive. The person who is related to the person that was killed or as a friend or a family member, they can't forgive because it wasn't done for them. So Rabbi Schiff continues, once the victim is not around anymore, that becomes impossible. And it makes sense because if the victim is dead, it's impossible to get forgiveness from the victim. So these people use that as an excuse to say, well, I guess no forgiveness and the story. And he continues, and we have an individual who was yelling, all Jews must die. And when taken into custody, continued to yell anti-Semitic slurs there is not the slightest indication that he would even seek forgiveness, which is very interesting because that's what happened with Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof was unrepentant till the end, even after the apology, throughout the trial, through the end, he was adamant that he was not sorry. But these people were able to look at him and see, you know what, he's probably not going to ever seek forgiveness, so why should we offer it? The black people just threw out the forgiveness immediately, two days after, without even waiting to see if he was sorry yet. And then afterwards, seemed kind of taken aback that he wasn't sorry uh when it was these people just assumed the jewish people they just assumed that he wasn't going to be sorry that they uh foresaw it, you know they just took it as a as a given um or at least they decided to assume the worst which is until he actually says he's sorry we're going to assume that he's not going to be sorry the article continues those who forgave mr roof in charleston echoed a centuries-old tradition in the black church Forgiveness can be as much a mechanism for survival as a prayer for a murderer's soul. At a Bible study on Wednesday night at St. James African Methodist Episcopal Church, not far from Squirrel Hill, most of the 11 parishioners present said they still felt called to forgive the synagogue gunmen despite their proximity to tragedy. So the, these people in the black church, they're even forgiving this guy, the synagogue guy. Like they're not only forgiving their murderers, they're like forgiving other people's it wasn't done to them it wasn't done to their family members um and the people themselves who were affected by this the jewish people have gone on record and saying they're not going to forgive and this is such a compulsion to forgive murderous white people that they um are even like offering forgiveness of, for other groups um uh, murderers which is very um 
Interesting. But the article continues. Listen to this. But in interviews here this week, Jewish mourners said that though they could understand the psychological benefits, they nonetheless felt little instinct to forgive the person responsible for such horror. You have to get forgiveness from the ones you wrong, said Paul Rosenberg, 64, an, op an ophthalmologist who has lived in Squirrel Hill for 35 years. How does one do that here? He continued. So, yeah, I mean, it, it goes... It goes on and on. There's example after example, you know, it's, um, it's really something. And, and one thing that's very, um, one thing that's very interesting about this to me, all this talk about, um, forgive forgiveness and stuff. And the people, the people involved in this, they, um, they keep talking to other, for some reason, pastors about this, right? Like, they spoke to, there's another article called Safety in Churches, Faith Community Responds to Shooting. And what they'll say that's very interesting about this is, this article blames it on being Old Testament versus New Testament, but I've seen no evidence that white Christians are any better, whether rooted in the Old Testament or New Testament. Supposedly white Christians are rooted in the New Testament either. I mean, also, they don't act like these black Christians do. So I think while it's convincing and plausible, I don't really think that's quite the case because... I've yet to see white Christians en masse um, do this. Like, I didn't really see them rush to forgive Bin Laden after 9-11. They, um, they were as angry about it up until he died years later and were celebrating as loud as um, anybody. It's, it's that there's a certain type of Christianity that's sold to black people that white people themselves don't believe in. It's a Christianity they created specifically for slaves to kind of keep them... Uh, pacified and you know because the slaves were illiterate and couldn't read a lot of stuff themselves they hand-picked and cherry-picked a certain image of christianity by you know with cherry-picked passages to um sell them but you know for themselves they find everything that they need to find whether in the old or new testament to justify retribution you know they'll find that part of the new testament that justifies uh fighting back they will they will dig in, uh, they will find it. You know, they might not have been telling the slaves those passages, you know, but they found them. And, you know, a lot of people in the black spiritual tradition have managed to find those passages for themselves or have managed to find that uh, rage of retribution in the New Testament. People like um, Jeremiah Wright in that goddamn America speech. And, you know, you saw how people acted when he used Christianity in that way. It was not quite taken the same the same way people were not um happy about that but actually let me turn to let me turn to a, a different article instead there's um there's another article here that i thought was pretty uh good it says jewish staffers among first to treat synagogue um gunmen and i find this part interesting in the article i'm not gonna read the whole thing but the president of the hospital that treated the man accused in the pittsburgh synagogue massacre says he was shouting I want to kill all the Jews when he was brought in. Allegheny General Hospital President Jeffrey Cohen tells Good Morning America on Monday that the first people who took care of Robert Bowers, the synagogue shooter, were Jewish. Cohen says he stopped by Bowers' room to see how he was doing. He says he hopes to one day forgive Bauer the way relatives of victims killed in 2015 in, at the Emmanuel AME Church forgave the shooter. Cohen is also Jewish and a member of the Tree of Life Synagogue where the shooting rampage happened Saturday. He said he lives near the synagogue and he heard the shots from his home Saturday. So this guy 
is Jewish. He's a member of that synagogue and lives close enough that he, he can hear the shots from his home. And he says he hopes to one day forgive, but that means that he doesn't forgive now. That's the main takeaway from that. And what did he compare it to? He compared it to, like, what's interesting is he can't just say, I hope to one day forgive. They always, for some reason, keep having to bring up the black people. I don't know why they keep doing this, but it just shows how intrinsic to their identity we are. You know, um, he says, I don't know why he says this, but it's the theme in all these articles. Um, he hopes to one day forgive the way, the way relatives of victims killed in 2015 at the Emmanuel AME church forgave the shooter. And I feel like he's saying that because the idea behind their subconscious is that black people forgive so that we don't have to. They are our grace in the world. Somehow their forgiveness relieves him, their forgiveness of their abuse for the sake of humanity relieves the rest of humanity for having to exhibit that same type of um, high-mindedness. We kind of exist to let them off the hook. And I noticed that for some reason, these people just couldn't say we would like to forgive or whatever. They either said we don't forgive or they said, I wish I could forgive like those black people did. And, you know, like this backhanded uh, compliment or like we've accomplished something that is beyond them, but somehow absolves them, you know, not that different than Jesus dying for your sins. You know, they, we, we apologize so that they can be rageful. We, um, we die for their spirit in a way, which is what I think they get when they watch those, uh, black suffering with dignity movies, etc. you know, um, we're fictional characters that. We're fictional supporting characters that allow them to realize things about themselves as the protagonist of the universe. And um, I think this is the last. I think this is the last one I have. But there's one here. Anguish by no, that's not it. Here, safety in churches. Faith community responds to shooting. And this was interesting because this one talked about how local churches were responding to um, responding to these. Um, the synagogue shooting like churches nearby and it was it was it was interesting because uh the guy's name is pastor al trichel i think he's a white guy i looked i looked him up and he seems to be um a white guy and he's talking about um what would ha- he's not talking about what would happen if he was um called called in and not no if something like that happened in their communities he's the pastor at a place called the grand uh methodist and the article didn't have a picture but based on pictures i found from the church and whatever it seems like this is a white church but what i find interesting was that while the black people were in these other articles were saying like you know they already know they would forgive and they even jumped to forgive the synagogue shooter which wasn't even involving them like even forgiving other people's murders this guy says um he's envisioned the nightmare of having a shooter walk into his church many times before and what he said is i hope my faith is not challenged he said should such a disaster befall us we can only pray for forgiveness which i found uh, interesting he said that he prays he can be able to forgive he doesn't so he's kind of admitting up front that he doesn't believe he could that he would have to pray he's kind of uh hemming and hawing about it you know um but you know, this is a this is a white Christian. He's from that New Testament tradition that the other article uh, says. And even though he kind of at least acknowledges that probably he's supposed to, he's pretty much indicating up front that he's not sure that he actually can, even though he knows he's supposed to. He would have to uh, pray for the ability to to do it, which is very different than what uh, 
the black people in these articles have been um, saying, you know, and the rest of these people kind of in this article kind of say the same thing. There's not really uh, anyone saying that they're sure they can um, forgive if it befell them, you know. Um, if anything, some of them are trying to justify um, if they should get armed guards, a couple of people in this article. So, yeah, I mean, this was a very much a tragedy. I don't want to sound insensitive to it, but I did think that as terrible as this tragedy was, it did kind of show us, it confirmed what a lot of us kind of feared, but already knew which is how black life is weighed. We do not know right. whether the, the killer white people, of Reverend Pickney wider society made others new by us ourselves. All of this history, um, but he surely sensed not really sure how the meaning to make of his violent act. Not just it was an act world, that drew on a long history to us of bombs think about and arson, with that shots fired uh, at churches, not random, but as a means of joining control, me again, a way to terrorize and oppress. Champagne sharks, five dollars a month. As always, be great and join us again soon. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. He didn't know he was being used by God. Blinded by hatred, the alleged killer could not see the grace surrounding Reverend Picnic and that Bible study group. The light of love that shone as they opened the church doors and invited a stranger to join in their prayer circle. The alleged killer could have never anticipated the way the families of the fallen would respond when they saw him in court in the midst of unspeakable grief with words of forgiveness. He couldn't imagine that. The alleged killer could not imagine how the city of Charleston, under the good and wise leadership of Mayor Riley, how the state of South Carolina, how the United States of America would respond, not merely with revulsion at his evil act, but with big-hearted generosity, and more importantly, with a thoughtful introspection and self-examination that we so rarely see in public life. Blinded by hatred, he failed to comprehend what Reverend Pickney so well understood, the power of God's grace. Yes, sir.